Hello and welcome to the second episode of TV Watch, a new podcast from Digital TV Europe looking at the biggest news and trends in the worlds of broadcasting, streaming and everything else to do with the TV industry in Europe and further afield. I'm Jonathan Easton, Deputy Editor of Digital TV Europe and on today's show... Sports are back, but not really as we know it. Presenters are broadcasting from their living rooms and viewers at home are arguing about piped-in FIFA sound effects. I speak with Darren Lepke, Head of Product Management at Verizon Media, about the hurdles facing sports broadcasters in COVID land and the tech that's being implemented to overcome them. And from one story of overcoming a hurdle to one of deciding that a hurdle isn't really worth it, I chat to Louise Shorthouse, research analyst at Omdia, about the demise of Microsoft's game streaming platform Mixer and the company's decision to jump into bed with Facebook gaming. But first... The English Premier League might be over as a contest, but you seemingly can't move for football on television these days. It's a bit like a London bus. You wait three months for it, and then 92 all show up at once with artificial crowd noises and intermittent drinks breaks. And it's not just the Premier League. Competitions from all across Europe, and soon the US, are making a comeback. And it's not just the lack of crowds that are making presentation and production look and feel different. The limitations implemented to facilitate social distancing range from very visible aspects of broadcast, such as presenters being sat further apart and the obvious lack of crowds, but behind the scenes is where much of the difficulty lies. Approximately 300 people is the maximum allowed into any stadium at any one time, and broadcasting teams of dozens of camera operators, producers, presenters, etc. have all been stripped down to their bare bones. Talk to me now about some of these challenges, along with the cloud-based technologies being used to deliver content to audiences at home from his home in Los Angeles, is Darren Lepke, Head of Product Management at Verizon Media. Hi, Darren. Thanks for coming on TV Watch. Before we start, uh, can you just briefly introduce yourself and your role at Verizon Media? Sure thing, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me, of course. My name is Darren Lepke. I'm the Head of Video Product Management at Verizon Media. Uh, I work specifically in the media platform group. Uh, We are a B2B service provider. We offer OTT streaming services to some of the largest broadcasters and sports leagues around the world. Well, the first thing I wanted to ask you before we we dive into the nitty gritty of it all was about the hotly discussed and contentious topic of crowd noises and the artificial sounds being pumped into people's TVs. Personally, just what are your thoughts on all of the artificial noise? Here in the US, we have uh, NBC Sports who streams the Premier League and they provide options, right? They have natural sound and they have the enhanced version with crowd noise, virtual crowd noise. And I find myself more drawn to the natural sound. So for me personally, uh, I, I like to hear what an empty stadium sounds like. Yeah, it's it's a bit eerie to begin with, but then you actually kind of get into it and find that you're kind of getting a more tactical idea of what's going on. So as you mentioned, the Premier League's back and we've also seen um, Bundesliga in Germany and Serie A in Italy are back. And it seems though we're getting back into the swing of things. Can you talk us through the production process of a, you know, quote unquote, normal football match, say, and how that compares to what's going on right now in the age of social distancing? Sure. So for us in the online streaming world, um, you know, we pick up where the broadcast teams leave off, right? So when you're uh, handing off the 
produced version of the match uh, to your satellite distribution endpoint and then beaming it out to homes. Uh, our system basically plugs into the final production feed, uh, prepares the video content for streaming on the internet, distributes, uh, distributes it to our global CDN, and then streams it out to you know mobile devices over the internet rather than you know through a satellite uh, to a set-top box. So for us, um, you know the biggest impact so far has been you know on our ability to actually do that plugging into the broadcast feed in person. Typically, you know we have feeds coming in uh, maybe to uh, you know the side of the pitch where we actually are sending people out to the stadium. Sometimes those feeds come back to a broadcast center, or kind of a centralized location or a data center. And we're able to, you know, go in and you know wire everything up and configure the the servers there. Um, given the pandemic that's happening, uh, our ability to access the actual location or access data centers has been restricted. So, from a production perspective, the biggest challenges have been to ensure that you know everything we used to do on premise can now be done virtually in the cloud. Um, the good news is the industry has been heading this way for many years. I, I like to say that this pandemic is is not a change agent; it's an accelerant. It's it's making things that were two years or three years on the horizon happen now. So as a result, being a cloud-based SaaS provider of services, we we see a lot of accelerated interest in tools that you can operate from the cloud. So. So for us, that means being able to monitor the feeds that are coming in virtually. You need to be able to start and stop events. You need to be able to go to advertising breaks. You need to do all the things you may have done formerly in a production studio um, in the cloud. And for us, the impact for us and our customers, really, the impact has been pretty minimal. So you would say largely then that the challenges that are 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 in in place are ones which you've already been, not with a view that there was going to be a global pandemic, but things of just like how the natural course of the innovation in the industry was going. Yeah, correct. I mean, there's a lot of benefits to, you know, beyond um, personal health and safety, there's a lot of benefits to having a virtualized production environment from an expense perspective, it's much less capital to do things in the cloud versus buying on-premise equipment. Uh, you certainly have a little more flexibility in terms of where you can route signals, what you can do with the streams. The challenge is just uh, breaking some old habits. You know, the television business has been around for 50 or 60 years now, um, and some of the habits are very ingrained. Uh, OTT is a relatively new thing in the in the overall realm of online sports or streaming sports or watching sports on television so again it, it's it's moving things along faster taking advantage of the benefits that virtual uh, production actually provides a big element of this as well has been lots of on-screen personalities who are not only outside of a typical studio as they'd be in a stadium or something but a lot of them broadcasting to audiences of hundreds of thousands of people from their living room on their lap. Is that a, a challenge as well? Yeah, absolutely. And it falls in the same vein, right? So you can imagine in the past, uh, if you had a remote studio someplace, you know, you had uh, your commentators located on site at the stadium or, or elsewhere, you would have to actually deploy a lot of equipment and infrastructure to capture those live streams from pitch side, right? You'd have to roll a satellite truck. You might have to have a dedicated fiber circuit. Uh, you might have to have a production, a, a director on site where you're switching camera angles and have a mixing board. All of those things are not practical when you're thinking about how do you capture a commentator from a living room, right? So in that case, the challenges are how do you ensure quality of service over the internet? How do you make it super easy for um, somebody like a former sports star who may not be the most tech savvy person to actually set this all up themselves? 
How do you make it affordable so that you don't have to get them to buy a $10,000 camera, broadcast cameras in their living room? Like all of these things are part of the kind of the new world that that we're experiencing. Communication from home is different, definitely, uh, you know, different than communicating from a studio, right? So there's there's all sorts of challenges from distractions to the lighting to family members wandering in. All the all the challenges are not just technical, right? There there's a lot that goes into kind of the planning and kind of run of show that you don't consider when you're in a controlled environment like a studio. The discussions have seemingly died down now, but at the beginning of all of the lockdown, there was a lot of press around bandwidth usage and right. um, companies like Netflix, Disney, they all committed to reducing their streaming quality for a few weeks. But lockdown isn't over and those companies are gone back to normal and most office workers are still at least being in this country in the UK, still being directed to work from home. Are you seeing an impact with the amount of data that's being used and the bandwidth usage? Are you having to factor that all in? Um, not as much. Um, so think about distribution of internet content. There, there's really three steps, right? There's the, the process of getting the content from the location where it's being captured to the internet, to the cloud, uh, where it gets processed. There is the kind of midgress distribution from wherever you're ingesting the content to the last mile network where the viewer is actually consuming the content on their mobile device or on their ISP. And then there's that ISP last mile piece, right? And each one of those steps, like getting the video into the cloud, moving it through the cloud, and then getting it back out of the cloud, all have potential for congestion. You know, I'd characterize the the early reports in the pandemic as as probably a last mile ISP congestion issue. And the good news is all three of those steps are subject to market forces, right? We have Internet service providers who are definitely incentivized to ensure that their viewers can get the content they need without any congestion on the network. CDN providers like us are are certainly motivated to move content as quickly as possible through the Internet to the available edge points. And certainly getting getting things into the cloud is, is a challenge, as we just described a few minutes ago. So I think what we saw was perhaps kind of a early shock from the sudden jump in consumption due to everybody suddenly be at home. But I think what we saw was the market correcting, right? There was conversations that happened. Yes, maybe Netflix temporarily turned down their quality to to ease some of that congestion. But at the end of the day, what we saw was additional capacity was added, perhaps some viewing tapered off. Although from a CDM perspective, we're seeing traffic continue to rise um, over the course of the pandemic. So for me, it, it feels like the market adjusted appropriately. We, we saw we saw what needed to be done in order to take advantage of all this new viewing. And so in the future, I expect some of those things to happen um, where, you know, if viewing continues to rise, we'll continue to see the kind of last mile networks and, you know, internet service providers and CDNs continue to adjust as needed. So taking a leap across to your part of the world, the US has seemingly taken a very different approach to sports coming back compared to much of Europe which in England, uh, basically in the sports leagues we've mentioned, it's basically been back to normal matches being played home and away in regular stadiums and everything. Whereas we're we're seeing in the US um, in a couple of weeks time, we've got the MLS kicking off and then we've got the NBA kicking off all from Disney's wide world of sports complex at Disney World in Orlando. From, From your perspective, does everything being in that enclosed location help at a time like this? Um, from a production perspective, it, it may simplify some things. The, the locations being 
uh, centralized certainly would help from a production perspective in that you, know, you can configure the environment to capture the video and be ready to send it out back to a broadcast facility. So for the most part of that, the burden of the on-site production lies mostly with the broadcasters, a little bit with us as an OTT service provider. So from that perspective, I, I can certainly see the reasons and the thinking for having people centralized. I will say, though, that primary purpose of centralizing athletes and locking them down to one location is player safety more than anything. So certainly applaud the leagues and the actions that they're taking to ensure the player safety, which ultimately will result in a willingness to get on the field and uh, restart the league. So it uh, seems like everybody's doing the right thing in the best interests of both the fans and the players so far. One other thing I wanted to talk about was um, I think it's really interesting to contrast what's going on in, I don't know how, how what you call sports compared to esports, but quote unquote sports. Esports is dealing with the same pandemic as the rest of us. And out of personal and professional curiosity, I've watched a few different things on, on Twitch, like the NBA 2K League and League of Legends. And a lot of them, they're all almost making the idea of the virtualized environment into a selling point. I think it's just the nature of quote unquote sport that they're playing, which allows them to be virtualized, right? You think about the traditional sports you watch on television, it originated in face-to-face -face, you know, matches. It's it's a test of physical prowess sitting across the pitch from your from your fellow competitor, right? And so the fact that esports has risen and the way you play the sport is virtual, I think really speaks more to me to the, the just the production challenges as a programmer at, at these broadcasters. You you spend all your money licensing content from leagues, you go through all the negotiations, you set up your schedules, you, you plot all your promotions, and then you know, one day you wake up and there's a pandemic and all of that is gone, right? So as a programmer, and certainly we've seen this with some of our customers, there's there's just been a mad scramble to think about how do you actually fill the time. We've seen a lot of customers go back to previous matches. They do replays. They may bring in new commentators and kind of uh, redo the commentary for particular matches, maybe even with players who are there playing the match to get, kind of give their personal perspectives. Um, we've certainly seen the rise of documentary content. There was a great Michael Jordan documentary that had been airing on ESPN during the pandemic that got record ratings. So for esports in particular, yes, the virtual environment is a feature of particular sport that they're playing, but I really see it as just one more programming option uh, for folks to fill in. And, and certainly uh, it has its benefits beyond that, namely appealing to a younger demographic, being a lower cost of production just kind of due to how the, the, the matches go down. But in general, I, I think esports uh, were a big part of the kind of sports ecosystem before the pandemic and will only continue to grow bigger uh, as we move forward. So would you say as an as an OTT provider, the majority of the conversations you've been having with the broadcasters that you work with in this time has has mostly been about that content? Yeah, certainly anything live um, becomes a challenge, right? So the majority of the conversations with the broadcasters we're having again is how do you do things like uh, virtual channels, right? How do you build a channel out of VOD assets or on-demand assets versus versus live content? How do you schedule them in? How do you keep people engaged? How do you still build a program in the absence of, of live content that used to fill a lot of your schedules? So I, I think everybody's relieved in some ways that live sports are returning because it it takes some of that burden off of repurposing and refactoring and, and building a schedule and building a desired set of content for uh, for folks in the absence of live sports. So lastly, 
you you seem very confident and that you've kind of been taking all of this in your stride and it's been something you've been naturally building towards. Tell me what you're working on and what we can expect to see from Verizon Media in the next you know, six to 12 months. From Verizon Media, yeah, I think we'll continue to see uh, growth in overall video consumption across the network. Um, so as a CDM provider, as a video services provider, our business has not uh, taken a major hit in the same way that online advertising, other other parts of the economy has, has felt due to the pandemic. So we, we expect to see continued growth and we expect to see some continued evolution in viewing habits and, and what, what our customers are expecting. I'll give you an example. So, you know, in the absence of having fans in the stadium to watch the event, yes, you're introducing virtual crowd noise to enhance the broadcast viewing experience, but we're also seeing a rise in demand for things like uh, co-watching experiences where you may be streaming the football match at home on your large flat screen TV, but maybe on your mobile phone, you're, you have a video chat going with three or four of your mates, right? Uh, or maybe you have that all in one experience on your mobile device. You can be video chatting while watching a game together. We're seeing a huge, well, I mean, a huge, but an increase in demand for things like gamification of matches where you can predict maybe who's going to score the next goal or who's going to win the match or who's going to have the most fouls. So for us, we see business as usual continuing to grow with a small evolution in, in changing the way that people are watching live sports together through enhanced interactivity as well. Thank you very much for coming on. And if people do want to get in touch with you, how can they do so? Uh, you can go to verizonmedia.com. Thank you very much, Darren. rise of streaming services, on-demand viewing, and the battle for consumers' attention are transforming the role of the video service provider before our eyes. With providers increasingly aggregating content from different sources with their own offerings, effective content discovery is emerging as a key differentiator in an intensely competitive market. But getting consumers to the content that will keep them with you is extremely challenging. Critical to delivering discovery tools engage viewers is a mastery of metadata. But what does this mean in practice? To discuss this topic, Digital TV Europe has partnered with Gracenote to present a free webinar on Wednesday, July 15th at 3pm BST to ask whether effective recommendation can power the content aggregator model. For more information and to sign up for this free webinar, head to digitaltveeurope.com. Now, Microsoft genuinely shocked the game streaming world when it announced out of the blue that it's shutting down its streaming platform Mixer on July 22nd. Many of the platform's partners had no idea that this news was coming and there were a lot of angry and teary-eyed streamers broadcasting in the announcement's wake. For context, Microsoft bought Mixer, then Beam, in 2016 for an undisclosed sum, but only really started to be noticed as a potential competitor to the Amazon-owned Twitch's place at the top of the tree when the company poached Tyler Blevins, aka Ninja, and signed him up to a huge contract believed to be in the tens of millions of dollars. Ninja was the most subscribed to streamer on Twitch with close to 15 million subscribers. And this isn't like YouTube where a subscriber is just a click of a button. A subscription on Twitch costs at least 4.99 a month with Amazon Prime subscribers getting one free subscription per month. 
Either way, Blevins was making serious money on Twitch and was one of the first breakout mainstream gamers, appearing on the cover of ESPN's magazine, being a guest on Ellen, and even having a promotional photo shoot for Adidas alongside David Beckham. But just a year after nabbing Ninja from under Amazon's nose, Microsoft is calling a day on Mixer and is partnering with Facebook Gaming. A curious move considering that Microsoft has just joined the swathes of companies that are pulling their advertising from Facebook and Instagram over Facebook's perceived unwillingness to tackle hate groups and harassment on its platforms. Joining me now to discuss this news is Louise Shorthouse, research analyst at Omdia, who has written up an insight piece on the sudden death of Mixer. Hi Louise, just to begin, can you give a brief introduction to yourself and your role at Omdia? Yeah, I'm Louise Shorthouse. I'm a games analyst at Omdia. I'm part of the wider games team and there are only about there are only a handful of us, so it's quite a small team. And we basically cover the games market. We do games market research. We size the market. We cover all segments. So we cover console, PC, mobile. And basically what we do is we help businesses, usually games publishers, with their strategies in terms of how they go to market, what their approach is going to be for their next titles, that sort of thing. And I focus mainly on mobile and also PC at the moment. We are still kind of reeling from the news of uh, Mixer's <laughs> shutdown. I was quite shocked given how much time and money Microsoft have invested in mm. the platform. Do you think it was as much of a shock as it initially appeared? It definitely was, especially for the, the streamers, I think, because from what I've seen, nobody seemed to know. So when it was officially announced by Microsoft, that was also the time when all the streamers found out that were streaming on the platform. And I guess that kind of shows that they really didn't want it to gradually leak out um, and they wanted to make a kind of global standpoint on it at the point when they did. But on the other hand, it wasn't so much of a shock because I think everyone knows that Mixer um, has been kind of subpar in terms of its performance compared to Twitch and YouTube. And also they have xCloud, their cloud gaming service, which they're really keen to get out the door. It's in beta at the moment. And they really needed a strong streaming service to work with this. And Mixer just wasn't doing it. So in a way, I think it was I don't want to say a good decision, but maybe the right decision from a business point of view, because it wasn't doing what they needed it to do in the short time frame that they had. I just want to go back to the very beginning when they purchased Mixer, what was then Beam in 2016. Was the initial aim just to break into the streaming space and to create a, a Twitch competitor? And um, what really changed to make them decide that that wasn't a viable option? I think it was that, especially because the streaming space is, I think, quite small in terms of the big players. So they probably thought they had a chance in terms of making a mark on that sector. But I also think they really wanted to build on the social aspects of their games offerings. So um, Xbox Live, for instance, where the, you can play multiplayer games with your friends and things. And it just seemed like they really wanted to provide a bigger platform for interaction and community building as part of their wider game strategy. And of course, as a games company, they had full command of an entire ecosystem, which other companies like Twitch don't have. So they have hardware, they have software. And again, I'm going to say again, that compared with Twitch, they're much further ahead with cloud gaming. You've written this insight piece. And in there, you mentioned that Twitch is really the, the leading name in live mm. streaming. Then also that YouTube is definitely the leader in terms of mobile gaming. Mm -hmm. What was the niche that Mixer was trying to capitalize on? Or was there even a niche for Mixer to capitalize on? 
I feel like because, as I just said, they are a games company or they have games as part of their wider offering, that maybe that was a bit of a niche for them. That was their approach, whereas Twitch and YouTube are always going to be third parties for gamers. So I think actually that turned out to be more of a disadvantage in the end because we obviously have the console wars. So there are people that are very much into PlayStation or Sony, people that are very much into Xbox and Microsoft. There's a lot of platform loyalty um, going around in the console space. So I feel like by attaching this streaming platform to Xbox, um, which is what they were doing, they were in essence kind of shutting out fans of PlayStation or it wasn't going to be a natural extension of their gaming activities, I think, just because it was Xbox is kind of the enemy for a lot of PlayStation fans, hardcore fans. Um, so do you think, so, sorry, do you think no, then right. they could have done more to work with third parties? Like you see Amazon with Twitch, they have so many promotions and deals with the likes of Epic and EA and lots of different big names in gaming. Whereas do you think Mixer was too locked into Microsoft? Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, they got streamers, and I think we're going to probably talk about that in a little bit. Well, I mean, we, we can talk <laughs> about that now, uh, if you'd like. Obviously, Mixer was pootling along, not really doing a whole lot. And then last summer, big breaking news. They signed up Ninja to this exclusive deal, big money. Um, it was the biggest name on Twitch, had about 15 million subscribers. And that's not like on YouTube where people are just clicking a button. These are people who are actually paying money to support him. So he was making a lot of money. Amazon was making a lot of money off the back of him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then Microsoft nabbed their biggest draw, brought up this whole exclusivity signing up war between them and and Facebook and YouTube. And then they signed also Shroud, who was another big name in Twitch, who was mm -hmm. kind of purported to be the replacement for Ninja at the top of the tree. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's happening to them now? Are they expected to follow Microsoft in, in jumping over to Facebook? Well, nothing has been like officially confirmed, but there were reports that Facebook had uh, offered them new contracts with Facebook Gaming and that they declined them, turned them down. And this is kind of, I think, largely on the basis of Facebook having some quite bad press a lot of the time in terms of data privacy and that sort of thing. And I think especially with millennials and even younger, people are very suspicious of Facebook, quite critical. And I wonder if streamers that are popular with these hard to get, um, quite coveted generations, they don't want to align themselves with something that their audience perceives to be damaging or intrusive or, or negative in any kind of way. But apparently they were offered quite a lot of money. Again, I, I, this is just reported. It's not official. Mixer isn't actually closing until the 22nd of July. Um, so for the next three weeks, they'll continue streaming on Mixer. And then they've said for the moment they're free agents. But I mean, if you were one of the world's most popular streamers, you would probably go back to Twitch, um, mm. I would imagine, as that's kind of the prime primary platform. And th they certainly did take some viewers over. But I think what was interesting was as soon as um, it came out about Mixer, I noticed a lot of fans of uh, Shroud, for example, or Ninja saying, oh, this is great. He's going to come back to Twitch and that means I can watch him again. <laughs> Yeah, like, it's it, as though they couldn't just go to Mixer and watch him there, as though Twitch was the only way. Well, I guess uh, people have their preferences in terms of their platforms that they like to use, and yeah, certainly sure. in terms of the uh, the economy of these platforms. If you're someone who's really invested in there and you're buying the 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 on-platform currency with which you can tip 
users. If you're super into Twitch and you buy a couple of hundred quids worth of bits, it is the currency on Twitch. Mm-hmm. You can dip into different streams and support your streamers you like there. And then if you're expected to then go onto another platform, it can get a bit messy. So I yes. can understand yeah. the 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 rationale of wanting to just keep on the one platform. Mm-hmm. And that's why that's that's why they do it, isn't it? Yes, yeah, for sure. Okay, so um, I just want to circle back now to the xCloud, um, the, the topic there. Mm-hmm. Can you, for, for those of our listeners who might not know what xCloud is, can you give a brief intro? So xCloud is a Microsoft's cloud gaming service. So it's not unlike Stadia, Google Stadia. People have probably heard of that. So essentially, it's where you play all your games in the cloud. So they're based on remote servers and you don't have to download your games or anything. Um, you could instantly access them because they're on, as I said, remote servers, which provide a, a library of games that come with the service. And um, there's usually a kind of subscription model built into that. So you get access to this library of games and you pay a, like a monthly fee. What What is the main reason why a lot of these companies are having the two-pronged approach of having both a video streaming platform and a game streaming platform? Mm-hmm. Part of the reason is that you can get instant access to games. So as I said, um, you don't have to download any games. There's no waiting involved. You can literally just click and play. So when you combine this with streaming, you could be watching your favorite streamer playing a game and you could think, oh, um, I really want to give this a try. And literally with one click, you could be playing the game because you wouldn't have to download it. You could just click straight through. And there's also a bit of a social aspect to this as well. So it would enable people to be able to play with the streamers that they're watching. They could just jump into a game instantly and multiply a game with the streamer. And I feel like Microsoft think uh, that this is a huge deal and, and they really want to keep the two quite tightly knit together so they really need a big audience to make it work and Mixer just wasn't really providing that for them at least not within the time frame that they had. So the the social aspect is is a big driver is that why then if if you want people where better to go than Facebook is that what is that basically the reason why they're they're partnering with Facebook now? I would suggest so. Uh, I mean, Facebook has kind of unprecedented reach, although it's far less popular with younger people nowadays. I think there was definitely a kind of dormant audience of which I'm a part (laughs) because I've been on Facebook for a really long time, but I don't really use it anymore as many of my friends and family, I guess. So although maybe younger people aren't as active on Facebook anymore, I still think a lot of them are kind of there. And in partnering with Microsoft or Xbox, it feels like for Facebook, they're tapping into these younger generations that they've lost in recent years. Whereas for Xbox or for Microsoft, they have access to this huge existing audience. But I think it's going to be difficult because they are quite different audiences. So Facebook um, is traditionally more associated with mobile games, casual games, browser games, that sort of thing, you know, like Wizard Friends. And whereas, well, Xbox is bringing this more core gaming audience, which I would suggest don't necessarily mesh that well. So it's definitely going to be interesting to see how well they can capitalise on the audience that Facebook is going to provide. An interesting aspect as well is that within the space of a week, Microsoft has announced it's partnering with Facebook to consolidate its gaming efforts while simultaneously boycotting it from an ad perspective. Is that going to have any implication there? 
Well, I'd like to think that they discussed this behind the scenes and and decided that it it wasn't going to be an issue. But I think that part of this might be Microsoft demonstrating um, that it's not going to align itself with the kind of negative parts of Facebook or or the stigma (laughs) around Facebook. And that this is is them showing that, as I said, they're not going to align themselves with that. Well, in your your insight piece, you do mention the fact that one of Mixer's selling points was that it was trying to cultivate a culture of being a bit less toxic than a lot of Twitch environments. Yeah, and I think a main reason for that was that the audience was very small. Right. (laughs) So um, there were far fewer people and at least far fewer people that weren't invested in the platform or invested in, in a particular streamer. And so there were far fewer trolls, <laughs> I guess, um, just by the scale of it. And right. as it sized up, I'm sure that would have changed. I'm sure things would have gotten a little bit more spicy. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's always going to be an issue. So last thing I want to ask, just whether you think that now with Facebook and Microsoft partner together, do you think it's actually going to have any chance of not dethroning Twitch, but actually providing a competitor? I think, I mean, it's so hard to say. I think it has a better chance now than it did before. Um, I mean, Facebook gaming already has um, a kind of reasonable audience, quite a substantial audience, but I don't think that audience is the same as Microsoft's audience or Microsoft's Xbox audience. So it's a case of if they can get those people on board with something with Facebook branding. Right. Um, I mean, as soon as it happened, I think I don't want to harp on about this too much. But um, there were so many concerns from people saying, um, if they make this streaming platform, I don't want my kids having something made by Facebook installed on their devices. So I think people have been very vocal about that already. And they'll definitely be listening to that and they'll be aware of it. I almost feel like they need a bit of a rebrand, whether that's something they will commit to, especially as Facebook gaming, as I said, already has an audience there. It's going to be interesting to see how they appeal to the Xbox and maybe more hardcore gaming fans, which I think was who they were aiming at originally, especially with getting people like Shroud on board, who is previously a professional esports player. I think it has a chance, but I think they need to be careful, especially with the branding. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming on. Before before we go, do you want to plug anything that you guys and the games team at Omdia are working on and tell people how they can get in touch with you? Sure. So my colleague, Dom Tate, he focuses on our esports coverage, although I do a little bit as well on the side. And he's currently working on our new esports forecast. Uh, so that will be coming out soon. So that will include all the market sizing. And if people want to get in touch with me, you can always drop me an email. I'm happy to chat about anything games related or research. So that would be louise.shorthouse at omdia.com. I'm also on Twitter um, at adloquia, which is a bit of an odd uh, name, but it's A-D-L-O-Q-U-I-A. Thank you very much. It was really cool to chat. So that's the show. Thank you very much to my guests, Darren Lepke from Verizon Media and Louise Shorthouse from Omdia. And thank you for listening. TV Watch is written and produced by me, Jonathan Easton, and Digital TV Europe's editor is Stuart Thompson. You can follow me on Twitter at EastJohnEast or get in touch with me via email at jonathan.easton at informer.com. You can find Digital TV Europe at Digital TV Europe on Twitter and at digitaltveurope.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter that will keep you up to speed on all of the latest goings on in the TV industry. 
And if you're new to the show, well, we're only two episodes in, so there's not a massive amount for you to get caught up on. But if you'd like to be informed when new episodes are released, you can subscribe to TV Watch on your preferred platform of choice, be it Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you.